there's one blind spot, and this is like industry-wide, and I think you can see it very clearly when you look at a floor plan, which is that on the development, design, construction team, there's no one, in my opinion, who's like really advocating like for the tenant. Everything's very mass-built, right? You look at some of these large skill developers, and we all generally know like how that process works, but it's done mainly for, like, for like ease of construction. Everyone can understand that it's important to like standardize things in order to make sure that when things get shipped and break in transit, you can move and replace things as, as easy as possible. Or I always give the example in a 250 unit institutional size job or even anyone, you're going to have a few different floor plans, even fewer kitchens and even fewer bathrooms. And then say like, this goes here, that goes there, which is why you're going to have the section cuts of like kitchen type A goes here. That's always like on the back uh, section of the floor plan, this goes there. That I'd say is an industry-wide problem, is that there's too much standardization going on because people are mainly concerned about driving to lower cost. Because for the developer, I think they lose sight of the common sense. They say, this is an Excel, therefore a 650 unit or 650 square foot one bedroom is a 650 square foot one bedroom. But we just know that's not true in like experience. But since that's what it says in Excel, but that's the way they think. And architects, I think, draw too often what they're told, maybe because they could move on to something else. But if there's one thing that I think that architects or developers ought to, but someone should do, it's like be a very vigorous advocate of the market and know it well. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, we're very excited to be joined by Bobby Fijan of Form Developers for a fireside chat about how to design apartments using floor plan data. Bobby is an entrepreneur and real estate developer. He currently runs Form, a floor plan analytics and investment company. Previously, he was a co-founder and partner at Cross Properties, a real estate development firm in Philadelphia, and he co-founded Taylor Bird, a property technology company. He's worn every hat in real estate from finance, capital markets, fundraising, leasing agent, and late night maintenance even. With that, very excited to be joined by you today, Bobby, and as always, uh, Chris here from the Monograph team. Thank you so much, George and Chris. Great to be on here. Yeah. So what's going to be really exciting about this conversation is I know you through Twitter, which is fascinating on its own, uh, just like yes. how people can show up on your feed. They're just really interesting things. But your kind of claim to fame through Twitter has been through your commentary on floor plans. And in some ways, I feel like you are one of the preeminent experts on apartment building floor plans that we have. And it's really evident with the kind of conversations that you're driving through Twitter. I'd love to maybe kind of start a little bit just with like, what led you to doing this type of work? What was the problem you were trying to solve by starting to archive a library of different floor plans? Maybe you can share with us what kind of insights have you derived thus far? Well, I got into real estate in 2010, 2011. I was in school for math. And there I was particularly interested in sports statistics, which at that time was frankly still relatively early to that game. And so the frankly interesting or groundbreaking work being done there was through measuring new different things or trying to come up with new different ways of quantifying value. What I thought was particularly interesting there was that it was done primarily through measuring stuff, taking in existing or longstanding statistics and breaking them down into new things. So I've always loved math. I've always loved data. I got into real estate just by chance. I was at a party and ran into a friend from school. And he said he and two other guys were in the basement of a church trying to start a real estate development company. So I figured I could help on the finance side. And by the end of the summer, I knew that's what I wanted to do with those guys. I would say even more than real estate, not that it wasn't cool, but the idea of working with some people who I got to know really well. So became partners, four of us kind of joined forces, became partners, and that was the, the beginning of Cross Properties. I get interested in floor plans. Well, when you're at a small firm, you didn't have any money or very little. And so you ultimately end up wearing a lot of hats, hence me being you know, chef, waiter, bottle watcher, all those sorts of things. So one, I think you get a really good experience on like what it is like to connect between like the Excel world and like the real world. In Excel, an apartment goes vacant and then it's leased, right? But there's like a lot of real world things that happen in like one cell to the next. So that's a really good thing. And then I'd say the other advantage of being small and being forced to do stuff on your own is that you can't hire people to help you out. So on something like zoning or architecture, I needed to be careful on which questions we asked our zoning attorney on because the clock's always running, which meant just like reading the code for myself. 
And when it came to apartments or data design stuff, well, Bobby needs to go figure that out. So I ended up being responsible among the four of us because I was pretty organized for the design and construction side, development design and construction. I didn't really have much background in that, but I knew how to systematically break things down. Funny story, I remember like the reason I ended up getting that job was because I think I was looking through like TNM change orders and someone was like, oh, cool, Bobby, you like doing that stuff. So why don't you keep going with the rest of like, so that's how I got started with it. And then I'd say the way where it really accelerated quickly was the first few projects we did were some historic redevelopment. And because those buildings aren't purpose-built for apartments, there's a lot more Tetris problems, which is just like fun, but you get a lot more floor plans per square foot. So I think on the first project, we had 110 apartments and like over 30 floor plans. On the next, we had 206 apartments and like probably that many, maybe even a few more. So you just see a lot more um, variations. And then after that, the thing that we ended up specializing in was building in high barrier suburbs. Again, you can't look at the existing data, you have to say like, well, what should exist? And so I think those two backgrounds is what made me like think like, oh, I can take some of the stuff that I liked before about sports and apply that to apply that focus. So it's been an avocation, something I've loved for the last six years. I've known enough about technology and programming to be able to like know how to archive things and look for data points. But that's the process of how it started. That was about six years ago. And an interest that stayed with me through Cross, through another similar but different company, and then now through what I do now, which is floor plan focused, floor plan data focused. When did you start accumulating a data set where you started to look for patterns? Like at the beginning, it sounds like you were wrapping your head around the whole operational context around bringing new product to the building industry, you know, into the market and everything involved with that. But at some point, you started to apply this data set mentality about what is the actual product on the market and how to quantify, like you were talking about with sports statistics, like what were the new measuring points that was previously absent from these Excel models, which sounds like the world of the developer is primarily in the Excel model. And how did you start bridging that to the spatial information that has to do with floor plans that represents more of the product itself? Well, in one sense, it was from the beginning and that I was always taking our units and breaking them down into different attributes. I didn't do anything dimensionally, but it was always even our own, I would say, I mean, most people do which one has a balcony, which one doesn't. But I kind of took it like, I always had like more, which one, the fireplace, what's the length of each kitchen, what's the kitchen run in each one. From the beginning, I was doing that for our units. When I started to like look at a database, data set a little bit more, it's probably about four years ago when I realized like, one, like how many floor plans were out there and these are image files, right? So I realized like, okay, there is a data set that's out there. And two, like, it's not very useful. It's an interesting thing, maybe like a separate topic or on this topic of floor plans in general that are online for leasing are just particularly bad. You've got like a few different varieties. You have like the typical like overhead one that's kind of like, you have some that are just a snip of like the construction documents. Then you have some that they basically remove some of those like ugly lines. You have some that are like a tilt, but because the walls are kind of in the way, so you can't even tell what's in them. So I think like knowing that there was this database of stuff out there, I guess to most directly answer your question, I started assembling the database probably around four years ago and then got really serious about it three years ago, put it down a little bit as I started the previous property technology company, which was related, but not exact, and then picked it up in earnest 15, 16 months ago to like, no, I had the floor plans and it was like, let's start really digging out the insights that are here. And that's consequently also kind of like when I started getting involved in Twitter, I didn't those things lined up together. I didn't mean for that to happen, but that's what I started writing about. For those that are just joining us, I'm very much curious about, we talked a little bit about this in the green room area about how you have a very interesting niche in that you, obviously floor plans is somewhat of a niche, apartment floor plans even might be more niche. You have a specific niche that crosses the very analytical world, maybe to a fault world of developer, where it's just like the world of Excel and the endless grid. And then you have maybe the world of architects who are, for many different reasons, might not think to look at the broader world and collection of like the data that's available on a specific building type or whatnot to like kind of hone in their craft. And so I'm very curious about what are the opportunities that you've identified where you sit in helping architects, which is mostly our audience, to like bridge that gap to the world of development? Like how can architects become better at advocacy and defending the work that they're doing, but then also yeah. to the, maybe to follow up on that, what are the blind spots that maybe they're not aware of? 
Sure. Well, there's one blind spot, and this is like industry-wide, and I think you can see it very clearly when you look at our floor plan, which is that on the development, design, construction team, there's no one, in my opinion, who's like really advocating like for the tenant. Everything's very mass-built, right? You look at some of these large skill developers, and we all generally know like how that process works, but it's done mainly for, like, for like ease of construction. Everyone can understand that it's important to like standardize things in order to make sure that when things get shipped and break in transit, you can move and replace things as, as easy as possible. Or I always give the example, in a 250-unit institutional-sized job, or even anyone, you're going to have a few different floor plans, even fewer kitchens, and even fewer bathrooms, and then say, like, this goes here, that goes there, which is why you're going to have the section cuts of, like, kitchen type A goes here. That's always, like, on the back uh, section of the floor plan, this goes there. That, I'd say, is an industry-wide problem, is that there's too much standardization going on because people are mainly concerned about driving to lower cost, because for the developer, I think they lose sight of the common sense. They say, this is an Excel, therefore, a 650 unit or 650 square foot one bedroom is a 650 square foot one bedroom. But we just know that's not true in like experience. But since that's what it says in Excel, but that's the way they think. And architects, I think, draw too often what they're told, maybe because they give move on to something else. But if there's one thing that I think that architects or developers ought to, but someone should do, it's like be a very vigorous advocate of the market and know it well. And that I think is something that should be done for both small time developers and smaller architects like you can be an expert in your specific market by doing things as simple as like visiting the new construction apartments in your area like just like knowing like rent and what works here versus there it's an easy thing relatively i mean if you have the time but it's also a thing that gives you um just a true expertise and uh that's the main thing where call it blind spot call it opportunity it isn't done. I mean, if, if you were to show up in a certain city and say like, hey, who's the floor plan expert in like the city? I'd say one that I exist, I'm asked to consult on people's projects, a certain area, kind of proves that doesn't, that that doesn't exist. And it should be like, I've never been to the out of my life, right? And yet someone asks my opinion based on data. What's there now? Is there room for someone on the data side to weigh in on that? Absolutely. But there should also be someone who's able to say like, I've walked through every apartment. I can tell you like, it might look good on the floor then, but it's actually bad. Why? Because noise, smell, whatever. Anyway, that's where there is huge room for expertise dominance. When you're in a project, you're collaborating and as a working partner, what is something that you might say where, well, the data shows this yeah. about some apartment plan? I'd say the one that I always harp on the most is that bedroom square footage is negatively correlated with rent per square foot. That's like the one thing I always do because in the process of how floor plans are designed, too much is done with this box that is like the bedroom, right? So they say like, we need to have a queen size bed. We need to have clearance on all sides. We need to have a TV, even though we know it's terrible for people to watch a TV in bed, clearance run, and we need to have like the two end tables. Now, one, I don't know how many people actually like live that way or design that way, but like that's the box that within like your 650 square foot one bedroom is going to like dictate where everything else goes. If you locate that, it's on the exterior wall. And so I'd say that's the main thing that I always tell people. So there's two different ways. So I measure the database that I have is essentially taking individual floor plans and breaking it into a lot more measurements. And so there's some that capture the spirit of what I'm trying to do a little bit better. So the two main ones that I'm usually looking for are called bedroom ratio, which is the square footage behind the bedroom door relative to the unit. And the other one that I find very useful is living room width. And that's usually, again, like a product of like bedroom being too big. So you don't know because not every unit is square, which one's going to work. There's a few other ones, but those are the two main ones that I'll say like these two things, one living room width is positively correlated with rent per square foot and bedroom ratio is negatively correlated with like rent per square foot. Basically make bedrooms smaller. I run data just to basically tell people that thing of like, which is also, I like real estate data. It's fun. It's like, I can use it to prove things that like we kind of already know bedrooms are for sleeping. And so if you have, and it's getting crazy that you have to say this thing, but if you have a situation where you have a one bedroom where the bedroom is wider than the living room, that's bad. And yet that is the case for a very large percentage of like new construction units that are being designed right now. And why is that kind of going back to data thing is like you get more of what you measure or you can't adjust the levers of what you don't measure. So no one tells people that like having a bedroom that's too big is bad which is kind of what I'm trying to tell them. So that's the first thing that I'll always say is like, let's check your bedroom ratio. Let's check your living room width. 
And then let's check that relative to other markets. If that hasn't been done here, then I can show you plenty of case studies where that's true in other markets that are similar to yours. One of the things we talked about too is, and you brought up a little bit of the relationship between the developer and the architect, where the architect feels like they're just kind of, maybe they're too easily deferring to what the developer wants in a sense. Yeah. What are the different ways in which an architect could sort of reclaim a position of, and I know a lot of, because we talked to a lot of firms, so sometimes they feel like there's a lack of authority in that sense. Yeah. And how can they reclaim that? Like, what are the ways in which they can either use data to support the, to support the, what they're saying? Or, yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, as we mentioned before, I think it's very important for architects to be experts in the right thing. If you just stand on the table and shout for, in multifamily, we're generally multifamily in most projects, not all, some specialized high-end projects that are a bit different. But in multifamily, the main concern you're usually going to have is like, this is too expensive. So everyone kind of already assumes in the development process, like we're going to do this, the architect's going to do their spec, and then we're going to have to chop it down like with the GC and the subs later, right? We'll have the electrical subcontractor like go find the cheap three single lights like over the island, which one I think is horrible. Anyway, so one I think, I think it's knowing where to pick your spots. I'm not sure that some architects realize like how much they are given, how much they are deemed to be authorities on floor plans, and they have a lot more say that they could just push into. I assure you, like developers should know their markets better, but many of them don't. They say like one of the pitches that I've had to overcome in working with other developers. They say like, well, my floor plans are just done by my architect. Not to talk badly about them, but I assure you, they don't know your market either. So you should, or if you don't want to, like you can hire me, I'll help you do that. But that is the place where architects, I think, don't step up enough where they can. And also, I think it's very important that when architects do that, you need to do it in the language of developers, which is return on cost. As long as you can show someone there is money in it, developers are happy to do that. If say you could say like, these are all the apartment buildings that have used like a light fixtures that were like this, or haven't gone with whatever low cost plumbing fixture is, and this is the rent they've gotten. That is one, it's speaking the language of data. It can still be experiential of saying like, I've visited this stuff, I know. That I'd say is like where they should step into the gap of the expertise and again, advocate for aesthetics, advocate for design, knowing that you need the language of returns. You don't have to understand an Excel model, but you do have to understand like, as long as a dollar that you spend can generate, six cents, they're going to do it. So that's what you need to justify and say like, here's why you do it because it generates return. The more I think that you're a little bit familiar with like operations and how that stuff works, I think that's helpful. But I think you can kind of pick that up. It's mostly just saying like, this thing makes rent better or this thing is unnecessary based on these other projects. In thinking about that too, it's like both architects and developers kind of have a very similar challenge in the sense of like the amount of times they get to tackle the same problem is much fewer than potentially the rest of all the parties involved that could help inform that. And we talked also a little bit about this too. It's like what we're saying here is not necessarily that like architects should go and necessarily build out their own like data analytics team to sort of evaluate the market. That would be amazing and probably a huge competitive advantage. But it's also about figuring out those people that are involved in the process at some point that can provide, to get more at-bats in a way, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're seeing the problem more and more frequently. It could be your, the local real estate uh, brokerage uh, market, mm-hmm. like the brokers, agents, talking to those yep. people to give you feedback on the plans that you're designing, getting yep. their take on like what they're seeing and say like, actually, you know what? This uh, The design here, even before you present it to a client, right? Like how can you start to get other people to get their eyes on something totally, and help you become a better advocate? The same way we were talking about the staging. Yep. The people that do staging, They've seen more crazy floor plans, shitty floor plans in their career than other people. Because in specifically to the purpose of trying to sell, it seems sort of weird to why would you bring a stager in or, you know, you have it into your design team potentially, or maybe you don't, but like bringing in those people to have that conversation of like, is this functional? Could you make this feel like it's lived in? Can it be lived in? And relying on other people who have seen it in, especially in the market that you're working in, which is more critical to be able to have that come to with that informed decision, it seems. And and it's kind of like maybe not super data driven, but at least you can advocate with a level of, I've talked to people who have seen this hundreds of times and they see this every day. And this is the feedback that I'm getting, which a developer would be very hard to argue and say like, oh, uh, me too, right? It's much, much tougher unless they're, they're crazy institutional. 
I mean, yes, I think the other thing that goes that is, we mentioned this also earlier, like the reluctance of both developers and architects to reference projects other than their own, right? And this is for both good and bad. I've met there people who said like, look, I did this thing this one time, or I did this flashing detail, so never again, because it leaked. Well, the, and the number of people who hate on some different exterior materials, right? Like there's some people who say like, I will never use that because I will never use drive it because this. That might still be a good reason that you shouldn't use drive it, but I know people who have ruled it out because of what happened 15, 20 years ago, right? In a similar way, someone could say like, I did this floor plan, I did this design for a building in a different market elsewhere, so it doesn't work. Too often, I think both developers and architects say like, they try to force the comparison of like, because of I've had this experience, because I did this other one, here's what's similar. And what should be really relevant, I mean, real estate is a hyper local market. So I have, I'm pretty sure the largest like floor plan database, you know, about 2 million individual units, 2 million individual floor plans, 600,000 have been measured. So pretty large. And yet real estate is like hyper local. And that's one of the things that makes it like fun, a challenge to price. And also gives again the opportunity to get expertise there because, like, I don't know, I live in Washington Square West in Philadelphia. We moved eight blocks away from like 16th and Walnut here, vastly different markets. What's necessary, what's best, highest and best use in design here is different there. And the more you get to that, the better you're going to be as a practitioner, as a developer, as anyone involved in the process of like knowing that stuff really well and seeing and being curious about seeing other people's projects. Once a year, I'll always go to New York like, pre-pandemic and just like see like what are the people building who have an unlimited budget. One thing that I find that's really interesting is the interior finishes of every apartment. You could open your eyes and other than the view, you wouldn't know if you're in New York, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Nashville, or Toronto, right? You would know the difference if you were in the amenity space because they'll spend, you know, $2 million on like on a hanging fixture. But it doesn't make any sense to me that if I could put up a floor plan on Twitter and say like, what city is this in? Is this in Amarillo, Texas, or New York City, Hoboken? That you can't tell the difference is insane. And that's what's built. Can you tell us a little bit about what is going on in real estate Twitter? Fascinating thing. I don't know. Uh, certainly not something I ever expected professionally. I got involved in Twitter, I think, like most people, or like many people, because I was bored and lonely, like in like the summer of 2020. And so for me, it started in that like there was a conversations about like, the offices are dead. We need more housing. We should turn office buildings into housing, right? So I've been involved in two of those and they're way harder than new construction, really complicated. So I just entered in by just replying on different people saying like, here's why that doesn't work. Again, since I love floor plans, from a floor plan perspective, if a building's wider than this, you're going to end up with shared light bedrooms, blah, blah, blah. Like here's the consequence of that. So that's how I got involved in it. And it really took off in engaging with a few other accounts that were quite large. And I'm certainly grateful for it. Like, being welcomed in. But in general, what I think is happening is that Twitter is allowing people to demonstrate expertise based on what you say. And one of the things that I love about real estate development architects ever is like, you can tell who's actually done it and who talks to what they've done it basically like based on pain. I remember like there was a book that I read when I was a kid, which was like, it was a legend or about some Roman guy and like he stood up in the Colosseum and he like ripped open his toga and he was like, I've bled for you. Like this proves that I love you. And I think real estate development is that way too. Like no one gets through it unscathed. And so what you can do is talk about pain, talk about like real like things. And so what I think has been really neat to see is that real estate Twitter has been able to prove that expertise. And so the other thing that has happened partly through a few different people who I think are influential and good is that there have been unwritten rules that are now followed around camaraderie, generally not dunking on other people. And it has uh, encouraged just more sharing. There's definitely been sharing this a little bit too much. There's different issues that are going to need to be like solved in real estate Twitter, just like elsewhere. It's wild to have grift and bad actors and that sort of stuff. But at its core, I think it is like knowledge sharing. And what I think is particularly neat about that in real estate is in real estate local markets that are offline, one is, you know, like everybody knows everybody in an individual market. Like there's maybe, I don't know, a hundred, I don't know, there aren't that many people in real estate in Philadelphia. So everyone knows everyone and yet no one really shares information, right? Like if you have like a specific kind of detail of way you're going to do thing well, like you'd never tell anyone because you're directly competing. If you have like a really good subcontractor, you're not going to go like tell everyone like, hey, here's how to do it. So I think what real estate Twitter has been a really neat way because people don't feel like they're competitive to say like, Here's the way I've done something. Here's how I do it. 
Minneapolis, Calgary, San Francisco, Phoenix, Philadelphia, New York, wherever, then I think there's been a lot of really cool problem solving there. So it's been really neat. It's been really neat to see that on the rise. For me, it happened loosely over the last 16 months. And I feel a responsibility to like make it be good and the level of discourse high. Yeah. And also it's not too much of like hustle. It's stuff that's a little bit more in depth. I think maybe the best example of, or one of the better examples of that, it is a medium that rewards like a niche. I basically just talk about like Michigan football, my family a little bit, and like floor plans, like apartment floor plans specifically. And turns out some people like that. So you, it's, it's a place that like can tolerate niches really well. Something I also observe in the real estate Twitter network is that there's a layer of developer operators. There's also a layer of investors. And it appears that there are new developments happening because of the new connection between uh, this investor layer and even in between the operator layer. I also want to introduce to that you're extremely focused on apartment floor plan like analysis, but yeah. there's also very specific rising accounts that are talking about the very specific business of strip malls. Right. And there's shared insight between, you know, across the country about these kinds of characters. But what are the other characters that you found to be really enlightening and also motivating in your practice? It's like coming out because everybody is in this shared online space. Yeah, let's see. So I think I posted about this like a few weeks ago. I'm not sure how I feel about the rise in, there's certainly been an increase in anonymous accounts that are very specific. And some of them are very good, like Stripball Trent. It sort of remains to be seen. Where I'm hopeful for it is that as long as the focus is around like expertise and specific like niche expertise, I guess that's what I like it best. So at least like the anonymous accounts, like there's something that's very focused on. And I just like, I'm sure there's plenty of people who are surprised or someone who cares this much about apartment floor plans. I didn't think there was someone who cared so much about like, you know, sub 20,000 square foot like strip malls. That's cool that there is. And there's a lot of, and there's some overlap, but I like that in real estate Twitter, there's enough humility or deference to expertise within something else. Someone who knows, someone who's multifamily in Philadelphia, like of which I do, and I know what it's like to build in some pretty difficult suburbs. I don't know anything about like Los Angeles, right? Like I don't even know like what, what the codes are different. So there's a degree to which that will hopefully should always stay in place. And I think where Twitter has been different than some of the different other mediums is that those ones don't have niche expertise near this much. It's more like huge, big follower count, like saying things in order to get as much traffic as possible. There are some of those in Twitter, but I think more of it is people being like hyper-focused on something they like. In terms of the connection between developers or investors and developers, that's one that I take a pretty dim view of. One, leave aside like the whole regulation things. Like, I don't know, I'm not using anyone of anything, but I guess like as, well, that's just something I think will, it'll remain to be seen how that works. I think it's certainly good, like the democratization of people being able to get insight into different people's ideas and see like how they work and how they try to develop. That is definitely a good thing. There is too much gatekeeping of uh, getting access to those kinds of investments, but I'm sure there'll be like overreaction reaction to that. In terms of the accounts that I like the most, I mean, there are obviously some very large accounts that most people already know, but I'd say in general, the ones that I like the best are people who are, uh, I respect like experts the most. And I defer to those in the same way that as a developer, like person I trust the most was like my zoning guy who taught me more than almost real estate, almost anything else, even though he didn't know about what I did, that he was an expert in this and I was an expert in that I think like made us a lot better. So those are the accounts that I like the best that people say like, this is me, this is who I do. I do this really well. And I can go into any level of detail that you want. I just find that fascinating. Those are the people that I like the best. There's interesting conversations that are, I mean, for those in listening that might not be in the world of Twitter, I think LinkedIn might have similar dynamics itself. But what's great about some of these platforms is that they can surface up expertise really quickly into your own network. And so as you start to follow more and more architects, you start to naturally, people that might follow someone like Bobby, you kind of gravitate towards. And what I always found really, what I have been finding really fascinating is a conversation that's happening, not just within real estate but also with architects replying to some of what you're talking about, oftentimes in like really uh, strong agreement. I think about Marilyn Modinger, I believe. She's fantastic, uh, yeah. Yeah, and she's amazing. And she brings in another layer into the conversation through her background in construction. She also brings in this expertise that is not just like proven through like her work as an architect, but also through the variety of experiences that she has that, again, there's a sub-theme in this conversation to me about 
Who are the people who are living day in and day out? You talk about the tenants, the people that are advocating that. And we talked a little bit about the stagers or the real estate agents that are actively touring every single day, these things. I think that's kind of really interesting takeaway from this whole conversation is that there are different channels and avenues where like education is being fully just free. I mean, what you're sharing with people, whether people agree with you or not, it's still leading to a more thoughtful engagement than a lot of other places on a day-to-day basis. And what it's also surfaced are people that have a variety of expertise in dialogue with you that are generating, I think, new ideas and new ways mm-hmm. to actually look at how we should operate, not just as developers, but also as architects. And that these kind of lines that have been drawn historically because of the access to capital, on one side, is very true. But even then, that's still up for innovation. And so that's what I get really excited is that because you sit in this wedge offering insights that are not really accessible to the normal practicing architect, there's a new way to enter a conversation now, whether through consulting with you or just tuning into what you're saying on Twitter, yeah. that you can open up a new dialogue that wasn't really there before for you. And that's to me the powerful thing about where we're at today. Very cool thing where we're at. I mean, I've given myself the moniker of like the Bill James of floor plans, which is hung firmly in cheek. But the place where I feel the most affinity of that is like, I mainly view myself as like an advocate for thinking about floor plans and data, which I know your product is all about like data as well of like, let's show how things are and then we can adjust. That to me, it's like, I feel like like an advocate for that. Who knows when how this happens? I certainly hope real estate data gets better. I want people to make better decisions. I have certain things that I measure, I'm sure 95% of which will be garbage, 5% might be useful. But at a minimum, what I think we can do is start thinking like, how do we measure and track things better? that we can improve the built environment, the way in which this work is done. Data for its own sake is useless, right? Like it's data so that we can build better, build more efficiently, build more beautifully. What are the highest impact moments you remember working with? I like how you mentioned the zoning. Yeah. The most important expert you've ever worked with is this zoning guy. Yep. Tell me about what happened or was it just a constant stream of precious insights you didn't hear anybody else say? And what did they say? And then who are some other people that are like this person? Oh, and his name is Ken Aaron. Um, he's a veteran. He's been doing it a long time. So the, the two people who affect, who certainly affected my career the most as a developer uh, were Ken Aaron and Jerry Gallagher. Jerry was, um, is, was like a grizzled, awesome construction guy who'd seen it all, who was like our SVP of construction. And Ken was um, a litigator, zoning attorney. And one, um, they certainly were, I mean, I love my father. He's not about, and he's not within real estate. So these two were definitely like father figures for me and they were much older. And so there's two different things I learned from them. One, I'll never forget. So being in a relatively small firm and then being in charge of development, like I was quite young and people have different roles. And I think one thing that I needed to learn was that being in charge didn't mean that you knew any better because you always walk in the room and say like, well, the civil knows more than me about this. The architect knows more than me about this. The construction guys know more than this. And yet like, it's my job to have a certain kind of thing of steering the ship. A little bit of that's just growing up and being knowing what it's like to be the boss. But there's something that I think is, or at least for me, was particularly intimidating in the built environment. And so what I'll never forget is like the way in like people like specifically Jerry in those different meetings with other people, his experience would say like, so Bobby, like, what are we going to do? And I'd say like his humility and willingness to say like, I know way more than me. And yet I have a role to build it. You have a role to say like, which direction are we going? Because your job is to steer the ship and look at the numbers. That taught me about like so much about life in terms of like one, being in charge doesn't mean you know more. So I know how to take orders from other people better. I'm not always supposed to be in charge. And I also know what it is like to have true expertise and not feel like you have to peacock. And he's just also a great man. And then from Ken, I think I learned the most since he's a litigator, both zoning in some particularly litigious suburbs was like when to fight and when not to. And like know how to sweat things and know or not. So like, you know, we'd go in there and sit in different meetings and be there for six, seven, eight hours. What I learned from him is like, don't go into those meetings without knowing the result. I ended up getting really good at saying like, I will learn the code as well as everyone else. That's what he sort of taught me of like, there's no way around if you want true expertise of just like reading it. And then you can be, I don't want to say tricky, but then you can be specific on that. So like by me knowing the individual code and being a developer, I could say like, I think I've given this example before, but like in an area we were building, FAR was not a defined term. 
because like they slapped it on in terms of like an overlay and they copied someone else's code and feel like we want to have a transit oriented like code. So FAR was not something they had because it was suburban. And so they had a little bit more height based restrictions and setbacks. So when they slapped it in, I remember saying like, well, since it's not defined, it means we can measure it in ways that aren't traditional. I only knew that because I read the code and my even architectly I was wrong because it was inaccurate, which it was, but it wasn't for that specific area. So I think those are the two things they taught me the most of what it was like to like be an expert, to be humble and know how to sweat things. In terms of other people who I've um, learned the most from, my other partners were great, David and Kevin learned. We just sweated through the trenches a lot together. And then I'd say that, I don't know who this specifically was from, but I'd say, so my wife and I spent some time, lived in San Francisco for a bit and almost moved out there I did start a prop tech company, but even before that, I was talking to a lot of different startup folks there. I've learned a lot by thinking about real estate, a little bit more from product oriented perspective. I think it was like, once I got there, I realized like how little that was done in real estate. A marketing team in real estate doesn't get involved until basically you're about to do like lease up, which kind mm -hmm. of like, it's too late. The floor plan's already set. The performance is already done. You can kind of mix things around a little bit. It's like, well, all we can do is put the best lipstick on this and then go out and sell. What's usually the way the product is designed in San Francisco is you say like, who is my customer? How much can they spend? How do they make decisions? And then you have, you know, like the customer journey and then you build the product and you sell it to them and delight them. That just like isn't done in real estate by almost anybody. So that I'd say is like a big thing that I've learned of saying like, how do you think in a more product oriented fashion? And then a book that probably influenced me the most was well, there's one architecture book, which is a coffee table book about the homes of like Joseph Eichler, who I think thought about product oriented homes as well as possible, construction issues and other things like that later. But I think the layouts and the floor plans, I think are absolutely beautiful and amazing. And then the other one, similar to product that I've thought a lot about is, um, there's a TED talk on it too, a Barry Schwartz, like the paradox of choice, which is that generally for products, people prefer beauty or options. And real estate and apartments in particular are designed like with the opposite way of saying like, let's paint all the walls white so that people can have a canvas to make it as beautiful as possible. No one paints, no one really does anything like custom special. I've been to maybe 20 apartments in my life that were like well-designed by people who weren't professionals. And so we're building bad products on purpose. <laughs> this point too, like the white walls is a really fascinating one because we talked about earlier too about how there's not enough strategic thinking in the process in general. There's not enough of a marketer's mindset, let's say, in what's the goal here for this parcel? What are we going to do? What's the market want? But then also what exists in the market and how can we be different yes. to what exists, yes. right? And this is a really interesting overlap because where the architect, I think, can be really empowered is by understanding to some degree more about the market in reality than the developer does. And be able yes. to enter that conversation with that in mind. It's like, well, why are you going to do what everyone else is doing here? Exactly. When exactly. these changes, or if we can do this or that, because I've talked to so-and-so and I've gotten some feedback, we can actually position it this way, or we can do something different, or this exactly. thing itself can be the thing that's going to make this thing stand out. And over and over again, I mean, but, but that's like, I think that also goes to what you're saying about zoning. Oh, being absolutely. able to like be the expert in the room around zoning and say like, actually, there is some ambiguity here about how this is written. Absolutely. It's possible. Does an architect mean that they have to like understand the legal implications of that ambiguity? Maybe. Sure. Or maybe it's just that they need to be have that, that team in place that extends beyond the firm and the services they're providing that they can easily pull into any conversation and say like, hey, I just need some advice on this. Like the potential client, this is where their site is. Can you give us a run through about what's possible here? But more for that point of like that strategy aspect of like, what else could we do and offer? And I've seen like behind the scenes videos of like Norman Foster pitching projects. And I think it's really interesting how they frame things because oftentimes they'll do this and shop is also known to some degree to do this, where looking at what's possible with the site that you could do that others might not think to do. And you might see it in the much larger scheme of big, might do this with the kind of the way they do geometry on some other buildings. But I think backing into what's possible through the support of other experts that maybe not at the level of the form and the building, because that's what most architects are used to, but even to the level of the floor plan is I think the sure. area where there's more opportunity. 
Oh, oh, absolutely. So I think the one thing that any architect can learn much faster than a developer and make them a huge, um, you don't need to look at the code as much as you can look at like, what are the approved projects that are already coming down the pipeline, right? It's going to be much easier for an architect to look at those drawings and say like, oh, here's what's being built. I see that box. I can infer this is what's moving on. One of the biggest downfalls of, or uh, weaknesses of developers is that they are Excel driven, right? So they look at data set today and they said, what maximizes rent? And they want to build that. Unsurprisingly, you see this quite a bit like in opportunity zones or areas where people are building a whole lot very quickly. They all build the same. Why? Because they're looking at the same set of data and they say like 475 square foot, one bedrooms. That's the key. Let's go build all of those. Well, now you look at the projects come down the pipeline. There's like 8,000 of these being built in one little area because of the time that it takes between like the lag of like when you decide what you're going to build and what actually gets delivered. Architects can clearly have that advantage of being able to look at an application of other stuff that came in that's public, but they can read and understand like much faster than developer. And then again, also just like, no, I mean, I think we talked about this also in the focus of like local developers versus like big developers and local architects versus like larger architects. It's like have neighborhood specific like expertise and like knowledge, which other people can't. I can know my submarket better than Blackstone, right? So it makes me an expert over them on this specific thing. Like they have an unlimited money, but when it comes to a project like that, that money's not going to give them any advantage over me. And they are limited and they have to build big projects. And then I'd say the other one that again, coming back to floor plans, because that's what I always do, don't build what everyone else is building. There's just like a huge product advantage to be like, are they building this? Let's go that way. Do you want to go head to head? And again, that's similar like sort of a product oriented thing. It's like, Let's not turn this into a commodity, right? Let's build something different. And then there will be some people who like this better. We might impress fewer people. We'll, we'll impress these other people more. I just want to open it up to if there's any questions also from the audience that they'd like to share, feel free to leave it in the comments or in the q and I want to go back to this thing earlier too about the ratios. I thought that was really mm. unique and how you're describing sure. the bedroom ratio versus the living room ratio. My, let's say, preconceived idea is that bathrooms are also a huge selling point. I mean, large bathroom, I'd probably take a large bathroom over a large bedroom any day. It's a sanctuary and it's like a relaxing escape from the rest of the world. But what have you seen from the data? Is there anything else that that people might have held longstanding beliefs about, but that you've somewhat proven otherwise? Proven otherwise. Well, so the bathroom one I haven't found to be true. Now, not that it isn't true. It's more like that it is true when done well. I think it's a similar good reasoning when people say like walk-in closets, right? Is a bigger closet better for certain types of demographics? Yes. But again, this is where like what is actually inside is what drives that, right? So, you know, we talk about like the back and forth process. Walk-in closet is usually defined as like, is there a separate room where you can like walk in and it's not a reach-in? Sure. And yet, and I've made this mistake. When people don't know what is a walk-in closet, they just think like, well, it's a separate room. And it gets value engineered down to like a single rotten shelf, right? Like the number of times I've walked in, it's like, this is functionally a reach-in, maybe worse, right? But it has a door on it. So what's the advantage, right? So I'd say like similar with bathroom. Sometimes people like don't know what else to do with space and it's easier to like dump it in the bathroom. It's like, oh my gosh, the bathroom is so luxurious. It's the same crappy tub. It's the same acrylic stuff. There's nothing luxurious about it. There are some, I mean, in Dallas, there are some areas or in Texas where they do like shower and a soaking tub and they do like a really good job. So those ones I do think drive rent where it's difficult with the data to flush a lot of that stuff out is frankly, there's a lot of waste in those two different things in particular. So that's why like one thing that I say about like closets, like if you're going to make them big, you'd need to put in a system, which isn't that expensive to actually, to me, in my mind, like justify that use of space. But once you put in a system, it probably doesn't need to be as big as you've made it. So to me, it's like thinking about it functionally, similar like thinking about a prior right away. So I'd say, Clear one is uh, walk-in closets do not drive rent. Linear hanging space drives rent insofar as like the big walk-in closet gives you that linear hanging space, but it is not the walk-in closet. It is like the actual use of that. So that's difficult for me to suss out, but I can in some stuff markets. I've seen it enough times that like I'm confident saying that's true. And then the other one is, uh, again, it's kind of like, and I posted a terrible example this recently is, I think that developers should be far more wary about putting islands into kitchens. They screw up the circulation and the flow of apartments way too much. And there's too many people who say like, I see this picture on Instagram, I want that. And it just like, isn't the right size. So I would generally, in general, unless someone really knows how to like design well 
and fit it in well, I would say like design for them to be movable, right? Pastors are designed later, then it doesn't have the same kinds of requirements, or maybe you don't have to do it, but that is one thing I do. So I do not find large kitchens to be, uh, again, positively correlated with rent in terms of size. So I think way too much money is spent on them. And it's mainly like the space. There's too much space spent on kitchens. Bobby, we've got a question from the audience here. Super yep. informative as always. Can you speak to how localized the data has to be in order to be insightful? How do you group the data such that it is also informed by a localized pattern? And another part of this too is, um, are the best floor plans ROC different in San Diego and Philadelphia, urban areas or suburbs? It's kind of a question of like yeah. floor plan data mapped also to region and, and maybe how granular, because you were talking earlier about like it can be yeah. extremely localized. So yeah, how does that parsed out in your data set? Sure. Two different things. One is like philosophically and the other one I can talk a little bit more like granularly. So philosophically, although I'm a believer in data, it's not king. It's a tool, right? So it should help inform either support for things you believe to be true or can help like check things that you're unsure of. And then you can make the good decisions. Again, switching to sports example, data can tell you that it's better to go for a fourth down, but you still don't run a shitty play, right? Like run a good play to your best player, obviously. So data, I don't think provides like home run answer in any one of the circumstances. That's like philosophical limitation. On the granular one, I try to be as specific as possible. I mean, a real estate is definitely like valued based on this. So like, it's why like I've spent a lot of time like grabbing a whole lot of floor plans. And when I'm making individual recommendations like to developers, there's two sort of sets of recommendations that I make. One that I can say, like, I know this to be true from like marketing your data. And the other one is I couch more in the vein of, I'm an experienced person who's looked at probably more floor plans or as many floor plans as anyone else. So based on this other market that might be similar to yours, here's some things where in their market, these things have proven true. The one I'd say is the data where it's, we don't need to argue, right? It's not about opinions. It's just about like, it shows that like units that have this kind of living with within your market, that's correct. That is like the truest sort of thing. The other one I would say is probably right, but still at the end of the day, like if someone from the market said like that's wrong, then I would put those things on an equal footing. The goal is obviously like highly localized. I would never advise someone in San Diego based on something in Philadelphia only, unless I would like say that because I was like, they're completely different markets, right? And that I would say is the one insight that to me proves that it's wrong. When I look at new construction units and some of the most successful developers and they're building in Seattle and Miami and Austin and Boston and San Diego, the floor plan is the same. And I know that's wrong. Right? Like, even though they might be similar and targeting the same people, I'm certain that that's not the right product. Or at least that provides an opportunity for like a smaller local developer to build something that is. It might make sense for the Mill Creeks of the world to have their program and just knock them out. That's great. I'm glad they exist. But for the smaller folks who are building more boutique projects, it means there should be projects that are done to the exact specifications of the desires of that market. And that's where you'll always get the highest return on cost. Is like knowing that the best, like knowing like in Philadelphia, the difference between like Addison and Waverly or the north of this, like you have that, those will always be outsized opportunities of knowing that stuff best though. What are your views on movable or flexible walls in floor plans? I mean, so I think there's a few products that do that. There's like Ori Living and then there's, I think Bumblebee might be doing them too. They're doing more stuff in the ceiling, but what are my thoughts on it? There's so little innovation within like the interior construction of apartments that I think that it's good. And it depends on how to deploy it. But I know that the current systems are far too rigid. Topic for another time, but like I'm a firm believer that a very large percentage of apartments in the United States ought to be delivered and designed furnished. Kind of taking it to the step of your stager all the way. We should deliver a large portion of them like this is beautiful. This is laid out move in. That should happen. It's like maybe a tenth of a percentage of the market in the United States. And it's one of the things that contributes to um, bad overall design because we're trying to accommodate as many people's like bad furniture as possible. Love that. We're at time, but there is one last yep. uh, follow-up question that I think would be great here. Sure. Is it possible that better floor plan premium is based on the scarcity of those features in the market versus actual benefit to tenants? Uh, E.g., there are many options if I want a massive bedroom, and tiny living room, but less if I want the opposite. Absolutely. That's absolutely the case. I have not spent that much time on like the why of certain things, but yes, I mean, 
in general, scarcity is just, I think it's better designed for scarcity when you know that that market exists, which again, to me is one of the reasons why like there are no good floor plans that are designed for families. There might be a thousand of those in the country that are just like designed well. There are lots of them that are designed like roommate sharing where you build a two bedroom and you make the two bedrooms of like equal size as possible, which is again, great for roommates, but no family wants that sort of layout. So I do generally think that is a very good strategy, but I haven't studied in the data specifically that I study like output and I study what's there. So make guesses as to why that gen that definitely makes sense, but I just really don't know that. Well, thanks for this amazing conversation, Bobby. I, I'll, the last question I'll ask that we'd like to ask here to move away from sort of the world of business and inspired by some other people that ask the same question, but what is the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? I'm married and I have three kids. So the obvious and the correct answer is that, you know, my wife agreed to marry me and has agreed to stay married to me over the last like 12 years. I'm obviously grateful and honored that a smart, beautiful woman makes that choice. There's that. And then, oh, and I'd also say like my goal for life, my goal for life is that at the end of my life, when it's just me and her, that my wife will turn to me and say, marrying you was the best decision I ever made. So that's what I hope to be a kind of husband where she would be, where she would say that to me. And I'd say other than that, the nicest thing is, um, well, there was a time in my life personally, like a, a few years ago, where I was very lonely. One, because as an entrepreneur and as a relatively smaller firm, it's hard to be friends with those different people. And you're also partners. Um, so that's difficult. So I was, had kids and it was just felt very, very lonely. And so there was a guy in my church who basically said like, we weren't friends. And he's like, let's just get breakfast every other Friday. And after 10 times, like we were friends. It reminds me like one, how difficult it is to make friends, how important it is to be like investing and building those frequently. And it is an unfortunate thing in today's society, especially for those of us who live in cities. We've lived in Philadelphia for downtown Philadelphia for a long time of like that people are lonelier and not as connected. So I'm grateful for the people who choose who found me and choose to be friends. And I certainly try to continue to practice that here. So that was, that was a the kind of thing I can think of. Ah, oh, Bobby, thank you so much for those answers. Really great to hear. And uh, we appreciate it. We're, we always think about like the business side is also very human too. And thank you for the vulnerability of sharing that too with us. We get all sorts of answers. So really appreciate you partaking on that. All right. So uh, the last we'll end with is a quick blurb about what we do here at Monograph, and then we'll let everyone go. So if you don't know, Monograph is designed for architects by architects. Hundreds of firms are using Monograph today to visually manage their practice, practice operations, streamline their repetitive processes, empower their teams to grow sustainably. 85% of Monograph reviews say easy, simple, or intuitive. And that's just it. We're built for the industry by the industry, and we want to make sure that architects are doing what they can to be better at business. And so with that, um, thank you. Chris, thanks, Bobby, for joining me. Thanks, everyone, for, for listening in and really appreciate all the thoughtful questions at the end. Thanks a lot, Bobby. Take care, guys. Thank you so much. Hey, it's Sylvia from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. Monograph is designed for architects by architects. Over 450 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial or sign up for a demo today at monograph.com. Find out what a practice operations platform like Monograph can do for your firm. Get started at monograph.com. Talk to you soon.